Well, um, that was a, quite the introduction. Whoa. You don't even recognize yourself sometimes when these things happen. <laughs> Who's she talking about? Um, but actually, when uh, I used to be at uh, recovery meetings at IBC, I had, there was a little bit different way that I would introduce myself. And I would say something like, hi, I'm Barb, and I'm a performing perfectionistic people pleaser. Um, and that's because performing was how I actually managed my life. If the people around me were pleased and happy, then I felt pretty good about myself. And you can imagine how tough that is to live like that, especially when you have a big family. Um, yeah, six kids and their spouses and 19 grandchildren. They wanted me to wear that coral shirt because they said it would pop. Actually, I think it's so you can pick me out of the crowd. Um, at Thanksgiving this past year, there were 32 people in the house. And uh, over the Christmas holidays, over a two-week period, there were up to 20 people flowing through my house. And all of them wanted, they wanted me to please them. And so trust me, that's a pretty tall order. It's really impossible. Um, I just can't keep all those people happy all at the same time. You know what I'm talking about? But I've tried. I performed and pleased and worked really hard to look good and to feel good and to be good. Timothy Keller says that's a, a self-salvation project. So when we, think, when we think everything is up to us, we actually become slaves to our own choices. Sin has done this to us. We come into the wor world curved inward, taking care of number one and wanting to do life our own way. You don't believe me? You remember those sweet little kids last week just learning to take their first steps? Just give them a few days. Instead of running to daddy, they're going to run the other way, <laughs> especially those triplets. <laughs> Paul David Tripp says, children are collections of self-sovereignty. And they grow up to be adults who are collections of self-sovereignty un unless something changes. We just want to live life our way. And we love to be independent and do it all by ourselves, because it feels good. It seems to work until it doesn't. I got to the point where I was completely exhausted. I couldn't keep all the plates spinning all at the same time. And so I finally let go of them. I stopped, and I fell into the arms of Jesus. And for the first time in my life, I experienced what it was like to feel totally accepted and loved. And I began to see how living my life for him was actually what brought freedom and joy. So God has always wanted rich, satisfying lives for us. But if we're at the center of our lives, it just isn't going to look that way. It's not enough. So what do we do? What's the answer? And Paul takes us there in the text today when he tells the Thessalonians that living life God's way is the best way to live. He says, live to please God. Paul's getting ready to remind these brandy new believers how to do that. Did you notice the slight change of tone when you went from chapter 3 to chapter 4? Proud Papa has shifted into concerned Dad because he feels like he needs to have a talk with his kids. Timothy's reported that there are some specific things that Paul needs to address in their lives. So... He says, and now, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. 
But living to please God is actually a radical concept. It'll lead to the best possible life, but it's got to be distinctive and different from the life other people who don't know Jesus will be living. It makes sense that it would, doesn't it? We're different now. We're his chosen beloved daughters. Grace has visited us. Grace has tied our hearts to Christ. We don't have to live to please him. We get to. Get to live out of a heart of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. Doing life God's way is the best way to live. And doing it his way means doing God's will. And so Paul goes on to tell us, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. For God didn't call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. His will is for us to be sanctified. Our calling is to be holy. And Paul's going to call for sanctification and holiness in three distinct areas. He's going to talk to us about living out our sexual lives and how we do that, how it looks to do God's work in the world, and how to have hope in the future. That's where we're headed today, okay? So let's tackle the first one first. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Last week, Rachel said that means progressively learning to walk in ways that please God. And she made it very clear that this is a process. It's actually a lifelong process where God forms us in the way of Jesus. You could kind of think of it as a renovation, but not a 30-minute one like they show on HGTV. <laughs> this is going to take time, and sometimes it's going to hurt because the Holy Spirit is going to go into those messy closets, and he's going to go down into the basement, and he's going to start rearranging some things, and we'll have to make some hard choices because God is after no less than holiness. This isn't about striving for perfection. It means that God has set us apart for, for himself, and he's going to do the work. John Stott says, Through Christ we're made holy in our standing before God and called to be holy in our daily lives. He's already done the first part, and now he's going to do the second part. He wants us to become like him. He's holy. He's completely and utterly good. There's not a single bit of sin in him. Pure love through and through he is. Pure goodness and justice and peace. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is one of God's communicable traits. We're never going to be omnipotent, but he does want us to become holy. Now maybe it will help a little bit if we think of God as a pitcher of pure, clear water. And when he created mankind, he made us in his image, and we looked a lot like him. But sin broke the relationship, and the separation marred his image in us, because sin muddied the waters. So mankind doesn't look or act much like him, the way Adam and Eve did at the moment of creation. But when Jesus came and died for our sins, he made a way for the relationship to be restored, and now his spirit comes to live inside us, so we can experience his presence up close and personal. He pours himself into all those who believe in Jesus, and little by little, we undergo a purification process. More and more, we start to look like him. The Holy Spirit teaches us, corrects us, and cleanses us, and we even begin to want what he wants. The muddy waters start to get clearer and clearer, and his image is more and more visible in us. In us. He's, he's a come-as-you-are God, but he doesn't leave us as we are. <laughs> so now Paul addresses the subject of how to live to please God as sexual beings. 
I realize, ladies, this is a sensitive subject for many of us. Um, and there are lots of thoughts and opinions and feelings in this room right now. And we've been praying that his Holy Spirit would create in all of us a spirit of tenderness and grace as we move forward. And so when I'm done, if you have any questions, just go and ask Amy. <laughs> <clears throat> so let's go on. It is God's will <clears throat> that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. You see the word learn? <clears throat> Progress over perfection. The more we choose to do life God's way, the more we'll reveal to the world what God is really like. And we get to live the rich, satisfying life we were always meant to live. But God's way is not the way of the people who don't know him. Paul says here, avoid sexual immorality. That word avoid says it means to make a clean cut. So Paul would have had in mind here the list of forbidden sexual practices in Leviticus 18 and 19. They included anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman. God was after holiness for the Israelites too because he wanted them to show the world what he was like back then. And since the New Testament God is the same as the God of the Old Testament with regard to his moral law, Paul was going to consistently tell Christ's followers to stay away from the immoral sexual practices of the people who don't know him. He mentions lustful passions. Lust is about satisfying a craving. It's not love. Paul speaks of being honorable and not taking advantage of a brother or sister. He's concerned about this community of believers. He's calling them to a sexual ethic that's self-giving and committed like God. The sexual immorality of that day didn't look anything like that. The Thessalonians lived in a culture where sexual looseness was not only practiced, but encouraged. He's writing this letter in Corinth, 350 miles south of Thessalonica. He's in a city that's almost exactly the same culture. And he knows what his friends up north are wrestling with. All he has to do is look out the window, and he gets a glimpse of the world they're living in. And it's saturated with sexual behavior that's self-centered, and disrespectful to God's image bearers. The Greek word porneo comes from the word to buy, and we get our word pornography from that word. It was also then the word they used for prostitution. In that culture, a prostitute was actually a slave who was often physically abused, and she could be punished, she or he, could be punished with death if they refused to submit to their owner's demands. The Greek religions even included sexual activity as an, an act of worship. Most of the men were married, but they didn't limit themselves to their wife as their only sexual partner. He could have a mistress for intellectual companionship or take a slave as a concubine. His wife was useful, though, um, because she could manage the household and bear his legitimate heirs. Sexual immorality didn't just refer to sex for sale. What his early readers would have understood is that Paul is teaching them it's no longer okay to treat a person as an object to be used for sexual gratification. Believers don't use people. The Greeks behaved that way because they had a very low view of the human body. They had a philosophy called Gnosticism that taught that human beings were fragmented, they were split. They believed that the intellect and the spirit of a person were the real person, and the body was earthly and lowly, 
They even thought it was bad. The body didn't matter. And so you could do anything you wanted with it. Well, if your own body doesn't matter, then neither does anybody else's. And that's what gave rise to dehumanizing sexual practices that amounted to one person using another for pleasure. Sad to say, ladies, our culture looks an awful lot like that, doesn't it? It's sexually charged, too. I know I'm going to start sounding like an old fogey here pretty soon. <laughs> but it seems like sex is everywhere. It seems like that's all we talk about lately. Movies don't hold back. Sexting has made its way into our vocabulary. Uh, we carry our screens around with us, and Lord knows what we're looking at on those screens. <clears throat> and sadly, social media has over-sexualized young girls right under our noses. Men and women are engaging in impersonal sex that leaves them struggling to know how to even have a relationship. That same Greek fragmented attitude toward personhood has made its way into our thinking. It's caused detachment so that who we are on the inside is considered separate from the body we walk around in. Detachment plagues us. The hookup culture encourages it. And pornography might be the height of detachment. It amounts to virtual sex. And even secular researchers are calling pornography a public health crisis now. Unfortunately, the church is struggling too. We've often given in to the hypersensuality all around us, and we hardly look any different than the culture out there. But sometimes we swing over to a kind of hyperspirituality that sends a message that sex is bad, that holiness consists in covering our bodies, especially the female body. And uh, the answer seems to be long dresses and high collars and one-piece bathing suits. <laughs> That's led to treating our bodies our females' bodies as shameful. And instead of viewing us as sisters, our brothers see us more like temptresses who can't be trusted or even respected. And then our men are often struggling with a distorted view that they are animals who can hardly control themselves. That does not resemble God's design for us either. So what is the biblical view of sex and the body? God honors the human body and views every person as an integrated being, body, soul, and spirit. We aren't split or fragmented. He teaches us to love the Lord, our God, with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are embodied spirits who get to honor him with our whole selves and respect others as his image. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And with this statement, Paul challenges us with the belief that our bodies ultimately belong to God. And the gospel. The gospel elevates a view of our bodies even further and dignifies them because God was willing to come down and rescue us in a human body. Jesus lived out the pure, holy, sacrificial life of God in a body. He died for us in a body. He was raised to new life in a glorious body. He lives in the heavenlies in that body, and he's going to come back one day in that same body. And wonder of wonders, he has come to dwell inside every believer, which means he refers to our bodies as his temple. This is sacred space. Our bodies matter, and what we do in them matters too. Sex is God's good gift to mankind along with the rest of creation. 
but an urge as powerful and potentially fruitful as sex needed a safe context where it would be honored as an expression of committed self-giving love. Tim Keller says, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. God brought Adam and Eve together in the garden as marriage partners for intimacy and connectedness. So marriage between a man and a woman becomes a picture of deep, committed relationship. And it also becomes God's picture for relationship with him. In the Old Testament, he refers to himself as Israel's husband. And in the New Testament, he calls the church the bride of Christ. Later, Paul would tell the Corinthian believers, since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so Paul affirms the marriage covenant as the context where sex should be experienced and enjoyed. It's a place of mutual love and respect. That would be there so that nobody would make sexual demands on the other or play power games. But unfortunately, sexual immorality shows up even there. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that there are many of us in this room who have hurt and trauma that stems from sexual immorality in marriage or out, whether from your own choices or someone else's. And that breaks God's heart. It breaks my heart. So I just want us to remember that God is a God of restoration. He's a God of healing and redemption. He sees every single one of us. And he does not see us through any lens of shame. In fact, he is right here inviting us into his arms. So what about being single? Got the elephant in the room? <laughs> Marriage isn't the only way to put on display God's love and commitment in relationship. He's given us the church. He's given us each other. And I know we're sometimes, the church, guilty of making it seem like marriage is God's plan for all women. It may have been back in the first century when women were barely more than property. They couldn't even bear witness in a court of law. They weren't educated and they had no agency. But Jesus changed all that when he treated women with respect and love and welcomed them as disciples. And his disciple, Paul, comes along and teaches a new thing regarding singleness. He acknowledges that single people have the same calling to be set apart to God, and they don't need to be married to represent Jesus and do his work in the world. Paul actually encouraged singleness because of the way it frees you to do what pleases God instead of what's, what you have to do to please your spouse. So for those of you who are single, I want you to know you're seen. And I know there are many of you who sought to live um, to please God when it comes to your sexual lives. Please hear me when I say we see you. But I, I know that can feel like a pretty lonely place sometimes. But you were never meant to do life by yourself. Paul envisioned a family community where people lived together and they cared for one another, not a siloed existence like we've cultivated here in the West. We have a lot of work to do to integrate our lives more fully so that no one is left to do life on their own. Let me just say, I am painfully aware of that. Living out our high and holy calling as the church that represents him to the world is surely easier said than done. But just like Paul invites them into more and more, the Thessalonians, then there's hope that we can do better and better he, right here and right now. And the truth is, both of these situations have their own challenges. 
<clears throat> you ask any married woman, and she will tell you marriage is hard. 50 years, 50 years. <laughs> it ain't no picnic. <laughs> and by the way, my friend has a metaphor for sex that I just know the Lord wants me to share, but it's kind of, I don't know. Um, she says that when it comes to sex, sometimes there's wonder and glory and there's great feasting in the land, but sometimes there's famine. <laughs> and most of the time, it's just meat and potatoes, ladies. <laughs> So to you singles, I would acknowledge being single ain't no picnic either. I, I heard a woman say once, it's hard to be one in a world full of twos. And in both situations, living life to please God is going to cost us. It'll challenge us. It'll keep us on our knees, and it will certainly require self-denial. But God has given us help. Paul David Tripp says God always gives freely what we need in order to do what he's called us to do. And his provision for the church to do life God, God's way is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He teaches and empowers us to live a life that pleases him. And he's given us each other as a family of fellow believers that we can share life with. We need each other. So whether we're married or single, we need to ask ourselves, no, we actually probably need to spend some time this week and sit down with Jesus and ask him, what am I communicating about you with my sexual behavior? What needs to change so I can live life your way? So Paul's calling the church to refrain from sexual practices that demean women and men because it just didn't reflect the way a holy, loving God would want his people to behave. Living life God's way is the best way to live. And so now he turns to the issue of pleasing God with the whole rest of our lives because there really is more to life than sex. This involves the work God's created us to do. So he says about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. <clears throat> that last verse in the message says, just love one another. Get better and better at it. Apparently, some of the Thessalonians were so excited about Jesus coming back that they had quit their jobs. Because why would they have to work? Jesus is coming back. Of course, that meant that somebody else was having to feed and clothe the ones who were sitting back and waiting. But Amy taught us in chapter 1, we serve while we wait. It's not loving to refuse to work and contribute when you're able to, because everybody needs to do their part. There's work to be done. God gave us the mandate to take care of his creation, to bring order out of chaos, and fill it with glimpses of his kingdom to come. Paul's reminding them that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. I always love the King James Version of this when Jesus said, Occupy till I come. And he didn't mean just take up space. He didn't mean to sit on the sidelines and twiddle your thumbs. He meant do the work I've given you to do to show people how much I love them. We're here to fulfill Ephesians 2.10. It says, 
We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Masterpiece is poema in the Greek. In everything we do, we're like poems, saying something about the God of the universe. He wants us to use our time, our unique talents and gifts to bring his kingdom to the earth. Whether we're doctors or lawyers or stay-at-home moms, when we're at the grocery store or taking care of aging parents, God wants us to show everyone in our sphere of influence glimpses of what Jesus is like. Some of these words, I can see them printed on a needlepoint pillow or hanging on a plaque somewhere. Live quiet lives, he says. Peaceful lives, ones that don't get ruffled and don't stir things up, but settle things down. What kind of world would we live in if believers were settling things down? Mind your own business, he says. That doesn't mean stick together and stay in our holy huddles. It just means his people aren't nosy or gossipy and work with your hands. Just be helpful. Do your part. The Greeks thought manual labor was beneath them. And so with these few words, Paul says, there's nothing beneath a member of God's community. Our Savior made tables and washed feet. Our grandson Noah is a woodworker. He's 18. Um, He turns wood on a lathe, and he has made some of really beautiful cups and bowls and Christmas ornaments. And last year when he graduated from high school, he decided not to go to college. That was a little rough, turns out. When people would ask, it's very common to say, which college are you going to when you graduate? And he wasn't going to go to college. Instead, he's involved in an apprenticeship. And now he spends time with these 50, 60-year-old men who have been turning wood for decades. And Noah's becoming a master craftsman. So, (laughs) proud, Grammy. Um, Aren't you glad that there are are people who work with their hands, for goodness sake? I mean, we need the plumbers. We need the electricians. We need the hairdressers. But in the end, actually, it really isn't about a career choice at all. It's about doing what God's created us to do by faith with love. Um, Not long ago, Nat Pugh, who's our pastor to men, gave our men a list of deeds. He called it Deeds Done in Faith. And this was the list. I loved it. It's on my um, mirror in my master bedroom, bathroom. Um, Right a wrong, heal a hurt, meet a need, instill courage, and do it without fanfare. The church gets to be distinctly different in a community that takes care of each other and serves the community around them. We're formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. So what are you doing with your one precious life? And how do you image God as you go about that life wherever you are? Hope you'll chew on that a little bit this week. So we represent God to the world around us. If we aren't set apart from that world in our sexual behavior, If we're lazy and self-centered, people are going to miss the message that God is holy and that he loves his good but broken creation, and he's always at work to redeem and renew it. Living life God's way is the best way to live. And so now Paul moves from working to grieving. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
Many of the Thessalonian believers didn't expect that anyone was going to die before Jesus returned. They were only 20 years out from, that, from the time that he was resurrected and rose. So they actually expected him to come back soon. So they were worried when people died. They were worried that when they passed away during that time, that they were going to miss him when he came back. And they thought that maybe that meant they were never going to see each other. But I love here that Paul didn't minimize the legitimate grief they felt. You know, in these days, it seems to me, I don't know if it seems that way to you, but it just seems like we have an awful lot of grief to bear. I don't think I'll ever forget the sight of coffins lined up one after another all over the world in 2020. And the year after that had its share of death and destruction too. We're two months in to this year. Who knows what lies ahead? Recently, my friend Judy was telling me that not long ago, she went to four funerals in one week. Later, she lost her son, her mom, and a nephew within months of each other. She knows mourning is normal and natural and gut-wrenching. And Paul acknowledges that grief is a part of living and loving. But he tells them to grieve with hope. Christian hope is the joyful, confident expectation of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus died and rose again. The resurrection tells us that death doesn't have the last word. In fact, death is powerless in the face of life. And Jesus is alive now in a glorious resurrected body. And because he rose up and his grave is empty, our resurrected bodies will rise to and meet him in the air when he comes. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Death is only a temporary state. And we live in the light of an eternity with Jesus in his kingdom when he comes to earth. The king is coming. One of the hardest and most hopeful funerals um, I've ever attended was the funeral of David Allen Stein, Tiffany and Jason's baby boy. 42 days on this earth, forever in eternity with Jesus. And with every song and word, Jason and Tiffany made sure that all of us knew that this was not the end of David's life. He was living on with Jesus, our resurrected king. And that hope sustains them and us, even today. We believers get to live life looking forward. Yes, we're going to grieve, but we don't need to grieve without hope because we live in the light of an eternity with Jesus in his kingdom on the earth. Ladies, the king is coming. Our hope is distinctly Christian. So is the way we behave as we live out his life in the world. We have the great privilege of showing who God is and what he's like to a watching world. The world is waiting for the church to embody Christ. It's a high and holy calling. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do it, and we need each other. But living pure, self-giving, hopeful lives right up until the moment that Jesus returns is the best possible way to live. The king is coming, and we're one day closer than we were yesterday. Amen.